Thank you for singing with us. That was a fast-moving one. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his home. the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to
day when my strength is failing. The end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then your holy name. Lord, I worship your holy name. 
be seated. I can already see the angst on your faces. Oh, no, he's not going to sing again, is he? Well, I am. And I had asked Mark, and he didn't want to sing with me, and Jim didn't want to sing with me, and my wife didn't want to sing with me. But I have three people that said they would sing with me, so if they come up. And I'm going to tell you why I sing, and we're going to do it with a song. But isn't it fun to be a Christian? Isn't it fun? All righty. So three people, they can't say no to Grandpa. So anyway, you guys ready? Thank you, guys. Aren't they great? Right on. And you know, the amazing thing is the God of this universe, that loving, wonderful, powerful God watches over me every minute, and you, and you, and you, and you. And you say, well, it says I can't sing, but I can make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving, into his times with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his word endureth forever. And that put aside, now we'll start back. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, all you guys online, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We just really welcome you. And if you would just call the church uh, tomorrow and let them know you're there. 530-533-6866, and we'll just be able to, to help you do whatever. And we have right now just a serious problem. We have a member of our congregation that's very, very, very sick, and we'll be praying for her, so remember her. And all of you here, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. You know, with all of you here, I get to know a little bit more about God because the Bible tells me that with the, all the saints, we get to know a little bit more, the breadth, the, breadth, the depth. And the errands, look who's here. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Anybody else here for the first time? Anybody here for the second time, third time? Thank you. Anybody want to become a member? There's applications at the desk, but you have to put up with me, so I don't know if that's a detraction or not. Anyway, don't forget to pick up your new bylaws and constitution if you're so inclined. Women's Ministry is going to be meeting this Friday at 6.30. And if you have an interest, just check with uh, Carol or the desk or the table outside and uh, join us. Join the women to learn more about Jesus. That's what this church is all about, to help us understand Jesus, to help us walk better, and to be of light to the world. Amen. And the Kingsmen is going to have their breakfast this Saturday at 8 o'clock. So please join us, anybody 16 and above. And I found out that there's a breakfast for men at four different churches. First, second, third, and fourth Saturday. And uh, First Baptist is yesterday. Where's it Saturday? And then there's Jordan's Crossing, and I just can't remember the fourth one. And then the fifth one is scattered. So if you gentlemen want to get to know more people, and Megan, with all the people, you get to know more about Jesus. So it's worth it. And then we have our meeting next um, Sunday, 
and that's when we'll be voting and in, uh, approving the new constitution, which three or four or five people have spent so much time rewriting, and we just want to make sure it gets done quickly. And Carrie, you didn't ask me to join the choir for Easter. I know why. You heard why. Anyway, anybody that's a teenager and above, whether you can sing or not, see Carrie Walden. It'll be a great time of praising God and understanding his death and his resurrection so we can get to know his father, our father. And after fellowship hour, there's three classes. There's pastor's class to understand a little more why and how the Bible was written and why it was constructed the way it was. There's Don Remley's class on the prophets. And if you go to Don Remley's class, you'll always come away blessed. You'll come away with new knowledge and new information. And then there's the book of James with Butler and Mates. Bates. Oh, my gosh. How can you do anything but go there? It'll be exciting. And you'll learn to be a little more how to witness in this world we're in today. And we have a uh, outreach partners for this month. Dylan and I think she, she spells it Tiraz. Tirza, uh, they're in Southeast Asia teaching English. If you want to support them or pray for them, there's some cards here. And we're going to be, if you want to donate to them, we'll use the little blue envelopes and just put MOM on it, and we'll make sure that money, money gets to them. So thank you. And Brian's not here, but Alyssa's here, and they're starting a new connection group for families. And if you want to know how faith in the family works, Consider this, and there will be child care provided. There's no ex dates as of yet, but if you're interested, please contact them. And the next thing is that we don't pass the offering anymore because of COVID, but we have an offering box, and we are so blessed that you folks have been so generous with your time and your money to, to help us maintain this facility and this ministry over the last two or three years. And just to let you know that the omelet breakfast is coming the first Saturday of March. Next week there will be a big uh, production for omelet breakfast, caring for women. And if you want to buy an early ticket, Connie's out in the, in the foyer. And now comes the most exciting time. We get to open God's word, that unchanging, living word of God. It's just so fun. And we're going to read. Did I get everything done? Okay. We're going to read from Isaiah 40. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, we will, Lord, open our hearts. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice cried in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become leveled and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God stands forever. A voice says, go. And I said, what should I cry? All flesh is grass, all this beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Again, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that's why we can praise God and sing. Thank you. You may be seated. And so we're going to pray right off the bat for Nancy. Nancy's uh, very sick at this time, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue. Now, 
If the Lord lays something on your heart to pray about while I'm praying, you can do it. It's okay. He can hear you too. He doesn't get stuck on one. He can hear all of us all at the same time. And I don't know how he does it, but I'm sure glad he does. So, Father, we do come to your presence right now for Nancy that you would just put your hand on her. You just, Lord, you have a plan. You planned it before the beginning of time. Put your discomfort, Bert, and them, Lord, that you would just heal her, make her well, and bring her back to us quickly. But we just know that you are the Lord of Lords. We praise you for your favor that you have shown on this church and the people, Lord. We just thank you that Jesus came, that we'd have a relationship with you, that we can actually talk to you and know that you hear. There are times in our life when we are not exactly perfect. We sin. We fall short of the, your glory. And we ask you to forgive those sins that we would be aware of and that you would just help us to say, we're sorry. Lord, this church is here to teach people about Jesus, not only the people that are here, but the community and anybody we would come in contact with. So we would pray that all the teaching ministries that we mentioned and any that might start would be aimed at showing people who you are and the awesomeness of being your kid. And Father, for those that weren't here Friday night, what an awesome time for Oroville Christian Schools and their historic sites tour. The enthusiasm to see these young people growing in Jesus, not being afraid to participate, sing and hold, clean up things. Thank you, Jesus, for OCS and what it means to this community, what it means to these children, what it means to the families. And so for Dylan and Teresa, we pray again that you would just put a hedge of protection about them, meet all their needs, and Lord, maybe they'll even be able to squeak out the gospel here and there, and that would be just awesome. We have connection groups where People get together on a regular basis to discuss the sermon, to discuss needs, problems in their lives, and again, to know more about Jesus sharing with each other. We have several boards in this church, the trustees, the elders, the deaconesses, the deacons, school boards, all this. Lord, just give these people that are on this board a desire and excitement about serving and that they would seek your face before making any decisions. Father, I have a daughter that teaches in public school. So for all the teachers that teach in public school and here, thank you. Give them strength. Give them enthusiasm for what they do. Let them be important to these kids that they are dealing with. And we also pray for the elected officials, for the police, for the health care workers, that you would just protect them, keep them safe. Thank you. And again, for those that are hospitalized, Nancy and others, and those that are homebound, make your presence felt, Lord as only you can do. This morning's offering, we ask you to double it, triple it, quadruple it, because only you can do that, and it would be used according to what would be best for you and to glorify you. And now my favorite time is praying for Pastor Greg as he comes and spend, spends some time with us sharing what he has learned about you and your word over the last four or five or six days. So bless him, give him uncommon boldness and clarity as he speaks to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. And all these people said? If, um, if confession is good for the soul, then let me start with a confession. Zach, you did a wonderful job reading the scriptures this morning, and I apologize because I gave you the wrong reference. 
So if you want to note in your, in your bulletin, it should be 1 Chronicles 29. When you read 1 Chronicles 29, you'll say, yeah, that was a more appropriate passage to begin this morning. But he read so eloquently, I just had to let him continue on. Well, as we gather this morning at the Lord's table, it's good for us to remember why we come and what we're doing. And this morning, I would like to cite two questions from a, a new catechism called the New City Catechism that has come out from the Gospel Coalition about 10 years ago. Question 46, what is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls, and it also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with him in his Father's kingdom. Question 47. Does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? No. Christ died once for all. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal celebrating Christ's atoning work. It is also a means of strengthening our faith as we look to him and a foretaste of the future feast. But those who take part with unrepentant hearts eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, with that as an introduction this morning, if you are in Christ this morning, trusting in him alone for your salvation, believing that it is only his merit that will find you favor with God, then you're invited to participate with us and remember who Christ is and what he has done and what we do as we gather and let him feed us and encourage us and strengthen us. And so if this morning you have come and you're at peace with God and you're at peace with one another, then joyfully enter into this time of celebration as a sign of our unity in Christ. If either one is not the case, then take this time just to reflect on what is happening and, and where you're at with the Lord so that next time you can come and participate freely and fully. The salvation that he purchased for us affected us not only in the past and putting us in a right place before God, it affects us in the present as we grow in sanctification and who he is, and it prepares us for a glorious future that will be in his presence forever. The servers will now come, and they are going to pass out the elements that are in the pre-filled cups, so you will have both the bread and the wine. Take for yourself and then serve one another in recognition that we are one in Christ. And as we serve, we're going to sing. Sing is an outward sign of our unity in Christ. And maybe you might want to peel off that first seal as we sing so that you'll be ready to go. And once we've distributed the elements and we will joyfully eat and drink together. For you parents who have younger children, please consider their age and level of understanding about what is happening. This table is open to all believers, but to believers only. Well, we take our instructions this morning from Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'd like to ask my brother Rob just to pray for the distribution of the elements. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, to this precious table. 
Lord, knowing it's a time to remember, to remember you, to remember your son, and that all that he gave up to come to this earth, Lord, to die for sinners like us, once and for all, Lord, his body, his blood, for sinners like us. Lord, as we pass out the elements, dear God, Lord, may we be mindful of who he is and what he's done, once and for all. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of this sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of Around the table of the king. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, born for you. Eat and remember that heal the death that brings us life paid the price to make us one so we share in this bread of life and we drink of this sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the king. The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Eat and remember he drank death's cup that all may enter to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of this sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of So with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Let us take and eat in gratitude of our great king. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink in joyful obedience to our gracious king. For I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in anticipation of the Lord's return, let us vow to live for him today because of what he accomplished for us oh so long ago. And let us do it in joyful obedience. At this time, the children can be dismissed to the Sunday school classes. And I invite you to stand for our next song.
di sini. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you this morning. We gather joyfully and thankfully because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And we're also mindful of the need that we have to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so we join in mourning with our brothers and sisters at the Orbit Rescue Center who are mourning the loss of a dear pastor and leader this past week. As we pray for the family, as we pray for this ministry, and as we hear further news about a memorial service, we will be sure to communicate that to you. So let's be in pray, prayer for them, this important strategic ministry in our city. Well, in a remote portion of Labrador, Canada, let me turn this on. In a remote portion of Labrador, Canada, found in the far eastern tip of Newfoundland, is the town of Wabash. It's an extremely isolated city and for a long time was cut off from most of the outside world. And finally, one day, a road was cut through the wilderness and through the forest to reach this town. And now there is one road that leads into the city which means that there's only one road leading out of the city. And so if someone finds them on the road, on the wrong road, they only have one solution, and that is to turn around from the direction that they are heading in. Well, that's a little illustration of the biblical picture of repentance. For each of us, as we arrive in this world with the sin nature that we are born with, we arrive in a town called Sin. And we can stay there, and we can wallow in it all of our lives, thinking that there's no other road. We can find justifications, well, that's just the way it is, or that's just the way I am, or there is no other way. But there is another way, and that is to turn around on the cul-de-sac of sin and turn towards the cross. That complete about-face is what the Bible calls repentance. Turning away from the path that we are on, which will only lead to destruction, and turning around and going straight to the cross, where we turn to Christ and confess our sins, and we receive a great forgiveness. Well, as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we arrive in chapter 3 today, where we encounter an interesting character named John the Baptist, he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. And his job was to tell the people to turn away from their own way of life, of all that they had done before, and toward the path of God, which is the road of righteousness and truth. And he will have much to teach us if we will have but ears to hear this morning. And so, once again, I invite you to stand as we read God's lovely word and as we prepare to study it this morning. We'll read Matthew 3, the first 12 verses. And the truthful word of God says, 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we recognize that without the work of your spirit in us, we will not hear, for indeed we cannot hear. But we thank you that you will minister to your people this morning. And so as we bow before your word this morning, would you open it to our hearts and would you open our hearts to the word that we would know that we've met with the living God this morning. To that end we pray because we trust in the living Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Thank you for setting aside some time. We're glad that we can be in your living room with you this morning. We sure look forward to when you can be back with us here very soon. If you follow along your sermon outline, we come to our first point this morning, which is John the Herald. John the Herald, the first six verses. I want you to imagine a historical setting. There has been silence from God for 400 years. No prophet, no announcement, no pronouncement from God during that time. Now, yes, there were angels that appeared around the birth of Jesus, but those were private events, as it were, appearing to individuals. But here in, Ma in Matthew 3, we have a very public scene. For the last words that the people of God would have heard 400 years previous would have been these words from the prophet Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. As Matthew, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, arranges the material to tell us about the life of Jesus Christ, he recognizes that John is preparing the way for the fulfillment, not only of these words in Malachi, but of all that was spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets. Now, this all last week, chapter 2 ended with the childhood of Jesus. They had fled to Egypt. They had come back, but instead of gathering in Judea, they went on to Galilee. All of that in fulfillment of prophecy. And then we hear nothing more of the upbringing of Jesus, except one event in Luke chapter 2. 
But since we believe in the full humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he tr was truly man and truly God, we can know that he would have grown up in a very normal Jewish household in a very normal Jewish city. He grew up in Nazareth. And so while we would like to fill in the details of what happened from the time that they settled in Galilee, in Nazareth, to the time that he appeared at the temple when he was 12 years old, and now to the time as he's getting ready to appear in the wilderness, the Lord has just given us just enough to keep the story pointed forward. We have no more that we can say. But what we can say is between what's happened at the end of Matthew chapter 2 and what is happening at the beginning of chapter 3, there's a time span of 25 maybe close to 30 years that has taken place in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then suddenly, the silence of God is interrupted in the Judean wilderness. And so we see what this prophet is going to say, and he says, repent, the message, repent, the message. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, in those days, that phrase, in those days, was language used in the Old Testament to introduce a new prophet. And as John, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, which will be affirmed as we continue on through the Gospel of Matthew, we're given the signal that a new day has arrived. Something new is happening in God's plan. Now, John would, would not have grown up in Galilee. He was born in Judea. His father was a priest, you'll recall, needed to stay close to the temple, and so they would be in Judea. Whereas Jesus grew up in Galilee. And so while their mothers were cousins, we cannot be sure how much they actually knew each other, how much time they would have spent growing up together. Because John certainly indicates in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of John, there are things he does not know about Jesus. And so he's going to be learning along with us about who this one, this Nazarene, the king of the Jews, who he really is. Well, our story begins in the wilderness. And there's an interesting fact there that many important events in the Bible happened in the wilderness. It's where prophets often went to spend time with God. It's where the law was given at the Mount of Sinai. And for the people of God, the wilderness was often seen as a place of testing and trial. The exodus out of Egypt and through the wilderness was a time of preparation for the people of God to enter the promised land. And so at times... While it is certainly true that it happened in the wilderness, the wilderness serves as much as a theological description as a geographical one. There is a time of preparation that is going on here in Matthew chapter 3. Now, we won't have time to trace all the movements of John the, John the, uh, the Baptist. We do know that he spent time on both sides of the river, that sometimes the borders were expanded and shrunk according to who was in control. And maybe we'll look at some of those details, but he was put to death under King Her or under Herod Antipas, who ruled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so what we know is Jordan today. And in fact, the cave in which he was held and imprisoned and eventually put to death is on that side of the Jordan River. So he would have been on both sides throughout his ministry. But here we find him in the wilderness of Judea. And he comes as the forerunner of Jesus. As a forerunner, he is the one that points forward to the one who is worthy of attention, not to himself. Now, John does have an important role to play in biblical history, and he had an important message to give, but he was only the forerunner. He was not the main event. 
And indeed, we can learn from the example of John, for we are called today to be ambassadors of Christ. And an ambassador does not give his own message or represent himself. He brings the message of the king or the country that he represents. And so like John the Baptist, we have this ambassadorial ministry of announcing one who is, has come and who is coming and who is greater. Now, there'll be more about John the Baptist as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and Jesus will have more to say about this one who was his forerunner. But let's get to what John is saying this morning. He begins with, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've already seen in our open illustration that to repent is to turn away from wicked ways and turn toward the righteous path of God. And what's interesting is in chapter 4, when Jesus begins his own public ministry, he will repeat the same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, showing that the repentance, the need to turn, to turn away from the old way to the new way is important. And so there's two things that we should grasp this morning as we move on. The first is just the meaning of repent itself. And we need to explore it a little deeper because it is fundamental to salvation. It is critical that we understand what repentance is. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we saw that the, the, the prophets would call the people to repent, to turn back to the ways of the Lord, to turn back to his plan, because their hearts would continually bring them away into other sins and other gods and other directions. Well, if it was urgent for the people of God sitting under the prophets to repent, how much more than when the one to whom the prophets are pointing, is it important for them to repent? Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart, that results in a change of attitude and a change in action. It affects the entire person. True repentance, according to the Bible, will always show itself in growth, in transformation, in greater obedience, in fruitfulness. And there are several factors then in repentance. Repentance involves the confession of sin. Confession of sin is simply to recognize we've done wrong. The Greek word for confession is homo logeo. Homo meaning the same, logeo, to say the same. It just means to say the same as God. He calls it sin, we call it sin. That's what confession means. Repentance involves contrition, where there is sorrow and grief over sin that we have done and how we've offended a holy God. And the repentance will lead to conversion, a changing, a turning away, a continuing growth. And, and repentance then becomes a way of life for every child of God. Because every day there are things we need to turn from. Every day is an opportunity for us to say, not my will, but thine, O Lord. Every day there are things in our hearts and minds that we must turn away from because we need to turn to Christ. But we need to beware. There was an evangelist of 150 years ago that warned about the unrepentant repenter. The one that knows how to go through the motions, to go through the actions, to give the outward appearance of changing, and no change comes. It's possible to be sorry for our sin and still not repent. It's possible to feel remorse and grief over our sins and still not repent. It's possible to feel sorry for having hurt someone or even have hurt ourselves and still not repent. 
We can even take pride in the fact that we're doing the right steps like the unrepentant repenter. But it's still not repent that results in life change and conversion and growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance undoes us. It strips us of our pride and of any effort in human self-justification. Repentance lays us bare before a holy God who sees it all anyway. And then we're just honest with him and say, oh, God, would you forgive me, a sinner? We cry out for mercy. We cry out for change. We plead with him to be moving in us that we might move closer to him. It results in changed behavior. It results in changed attitudes. It results in changed actions. Because as we repent, we bow before the cross and we say, we are unworthy. But you forgive us. You relieve us from the guilt. You release us from the bondage. You forgive us from the penalty of sin. And therefore, as we look at that whole concept of repentance, we give up any pretense of trying to somehow save our dignity, save our reputation, save our faith. Repentance never seeks to save faith. It only seeks the face of God. And in there is salvation, and there is transformation, and there there is holiness. We're reminded in places like Acts chapter 11 and 2 Timothy 2 that ultimately repentance is a work of God. And therefore we're dependent upon God to be doing that heart operation, that heart surgery that truly brings about this life change. And the repentant heart is one who seizes the truth of James chapter 4 verse 6. God opposes, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus will have much more to say about repentance in the Gospel of Matthew. But we start with this challenge. Repent. Something new is here. That means the old is not good enough and we must turn from it. That's a description of repentance. What is the meaning of the kingdom of heaven? Now the kingdom of heaven is an expression that is unique to Matthew. But it's the same expression as used elsewhere as the kingdom of God. You see, the Jews were very careful in how they used the name of God. They didn't want to mention the name of God. Oftentimes didn't want to mention things associated with God. So they would use other words. And in this case, heaven is a substitute for the name of God. And so we see these as parallel things because they show up in the same places in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But what is that kingdom? Well, Jesus came as a king, right? One born king of the Jews, announcing the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven is the, the reign and the rule of God over his people. And this reign and this rule over God's people expands as the gospel is preached and as more and more people enter the kingdom through faith and repentance and God rules over their lives and eventually it will be over all of creation for all will be brought as we've already sung to kneel before Christ and confess him as Lord. And what we see is those who enter the kingdom of heaven in faith and repentance and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting him is that there is this transformational living. There is this repentance. There is this joy, this vitality, this newness that comes. And yet there's a mystery to this kingdom. Because it is a kingdom that is here now 
and yet it is a kingdom that is yet to come. It is a kingdom that is both now and it's not yet. We, we experience a partial measure of what it means to be in the kingdom of God as we are regenerated, as we enter into the family of God, as we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and yet we all know in our hearts there must be more. And there will be as the kingdom of God will come in its fullness at the return of Christ, putting down all wickedness, all opposition. Righteousness will rule and reign over all of creation. And so John begins with this message this morning, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. You can enter into it now. You can hear the message. You can grow. But secondly, then we hear, prepare, prepare the prophet. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was this voice crying out in the wilderness, and this was certainly a, a phenomenon that would draw attention, and it did. And John was a bold preacher, not a timid one, bravely announcing the reality of sin, the reality of judgment. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. And in all that he did, he took care to point people to the Lord. He was a voice used of God, but he was not the message. He used his voice to announce the message and to point people to the message, even our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great example for us today with the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the education and the resources that we have been given, we can use all of that to continually point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one that still can make all the difference. We're told that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. John came to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight the paths. Now, roads in those days... They were in very good shape, full of rocks and uneven and potholes and, and all kinds of things. And so whenever a king or a dignitary would prepare to come to a village or a city, there would be great work that would be put in to remove the obstacles from the road, to repair the roads, to smooth them out from the bumps that were in the road. In the times that we spent in, in West Africa and the Middle East, we saw this phenomenon. As a king or an ambassador or a dignity would come, days ahead of time, people would be out on the streets, sweeping the streets, painting the curbs, filling the potholes, making sure the roads were smooth so that the delegation as it came went across the smooth roads. That's the image that is behind here. But I think it's physical image leading to a spiritual reality. The obstacles and bumps in the hearts of men need to be smoothed over. The obstacles of rebellion and sin and wrong ways of living need to be moved out of the way before the coming of the Lord. And this was a preparation for the way of the Lord. But it's seen as a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. What I think is interesting is we look at it and it says, for the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make straight his paths, and it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here is from the lips of John the Baptist, fulfilling the words from the prophet Isaiah, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is God. We have a statement here of his deity, that he is the one who will come and set people free from their sins. He is the one that will lead them through a new exodus, away from darkness and rebellion and sin, and into the kingdom of light. 
And so John here is acting like the herald, the one who would go before the king to announce his arrival. And oftentimes there would be the blast of the trumpets and a group that would go out and say, prepare the way of the king. That's what John is doing here. He's coming out and saying the king is coming. The plan is being fulfilled. Escape the wrath that is to come. Use the only route that there is to escape his wrath, which is the way of the Lord. He came as a prophet. He came dressed like Elijah. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And we look at how the prophet Elijah dressed, we see that John dressed in the same way, and that is why later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will say, if you are able to receive it, Elijah was the, uh, John was the Elijah who was to come. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And he wore the garments of the common people. Camel hair was coarse, but thick. It would be something that would be durable and something that would protect them against the dust, the wind, the rain, the, the d dangerous elements of the wilderness. He was wearing the garment of the common people, living among the common people, bringing the message that God cares right down to the level of the common people. And he ate locusts and wild honey, which is interesting because locusts are the one insect you could eat under the law. And in that day, they would collect them, they would dry them, they would grind them into a flour, and they would consume them. They would also roast them, they would cook them, they would grill them, they would broil them. There are many ways that they were eaten, and it might not be something that we would want to eat, but it was a prized source of nourishment in the ancient Near East. And in fact, there are many cultures today that eat locusts. So just to get you ready, they got a whole basket out there. He came and he ate the, the meals of the common people, what was available, dressed as a common man to the common man because he wanted the attention to go to the Lord and not to him. And so after we see he is preparing, he's, he's the prophet, we see confession, the people. We see that the people came from all over. They they were hungry, they were eager, they were desperate, they were oppressed, they're looking forward for freedom. And they go into the wilderness. Now that would have been for some a difficult journey to make, leaving the cities and towns and going into the rough terrain of the wilderness. But they longed for a Messiah. They longed for a deliverer. The problem was they didn't initially understand the deliverance and the type of Messiah that Jesus would have and he would bring. They wanted a military deliverer. They wanted an economic deliverer, but what they needed was a deliverer from a far greater enemy, their own sin. And we're told that as they came and as they heard John, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region came about the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized. Now, this is a baptism of purification and of turning away from the old ways. It's a baptism of preparation. This is not the baptism where, that we practice in our church where we recognize that a, a work of God has been operated in someone's life. They've been born again. They are new. We see that and we symbolize what we see 
with baptism. That's not the baptism that is here. This was a baptism of preparation, a baptism of purification. But baptism was a recognition that the old ways weren't working. And this baptism, they're identifying with the new way that is coming. And they baptized themselves. And why do I emphasize that? He said they were baptized by John because there was a proselyte baptism whereby Gentiles would confess their sins, confess their background, and join the Jewish people, but they would baptize themselves because they were not yet seen as pure until they had gone through all the rituals and then they could be embraced. But here John is the one, puts his hands on them, identifies with them, says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, gives them the purification of baptism. But this symbol of the baptism is important for the message that uh, Matthew wants us to know as he prepares his gospel because it makes it clear. These were not just Gentiles coming to get baptized. These were Jewish people that were coming to get baptized. And what they're recognizing then is that it was not enough to be Jewish to be saved before a holy God. For us today, it is not enough to be in the church to be saved. It is not enough to be from a Christian family to be saved. Each of us must turn away from the sinful path that we are born on and that we walk on, and then we turn to the living God for mercy and grace. So they're getting ready. They're confessing their sins. They're being purified. They know that this message of judgment and sin is there, and they're getting ready as our first point of John the Herald. Secondly, we have the united enemies. Now, it's okay. The next two points are not going to be as long as the first one. Okay. But the preaching of a prophet in the wilderness would have drawn a crowd. It did. Both those who were interested and those who were simply coming by to observe, those who were simply wanting to check out John, or more importantly, to come and judge John, as we will see. And John sees that the religious leaders are coming to him, whom he called dangerous snakes. Dangerous snakes. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, we'll just stop there and talk a little bit about who these two groups are because we're going to see them a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees were the separated ones. That's what their name came from. They were the separatists. And they had a strict adherence to the law. But not just to the law, to their own interpretation of the law, which is called the tradition of the elders. Over time, they added laws upon laws. First, it was how to keep the law. And then it was, well, how do you keep from keeping, or how do you keep from breaking the laws and interpret the laws? And by the time of Christ, there was layer upon layer of interpretation that had been given so that they could be truly separated from anything that they thought was impure. But the Pharisees. They were the ones that were close to the people. They were the teachers in the synagogue. They knew the the common man, but they detested the Roman rule that was over them. And they longed to be set free from oppression. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They had the political clout. They had the economic clout. They controlled the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council of the Jews. And they were in league with Rome. They controlled a lot of the activities of the temple. They liked the status quo. They liked the power. They liked the prestige that they had. And so they were detested by the people because they, in a sense, separated themselves from the people who wanted liberation, who wanted freedom. 
And so you can see how these two groups are set against each other. There's many more differences, but those are main ones to get us started. They're in opposition to each other normally. And yet here they come together seemingly in opposition to John. The text gives us the idea that they came to see what was happening and more or less to put John to the test. Maybe they wanted to present themselves as candidates for baptism, but John, he sees through them. He knows they have ulterior motives. He's not going to baptize someone he suspects of hypocrisy. So that he sees them coming to him, and what is his response? You brood of vipers. You can almost hear the voice echoing through the hills. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So imagine their shock, their surprise. They're, they're the religious leaders. And John is charging them with misleading the people. Even calling them a great danger to the people. With the imagery of the viper. The viper is clever. The viper is deceptive. The viper is dangerous. And if you've ever seen pictures of vipers during a, during a fire, they know how to move quickly away from the fire. And so you get that image then of the religious leaders coming and slithering away as they hear about the coming fire. But you see, they relied on their heritage, their religious heritage, their religious connection for their prestige and their protection. They thought that they were God's special ones. And in no uncertain terms, John tells them that their power comes from a very different spiritual source. And goes on to tell them about Abraham's true children. God's wrath is coming, he tells them. Who warned you about it? And then exhorts them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance will show itself. Let's see that it's showing in your life. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, they're... Name-dropping, they're claiming a special affection and attention of Abraham. But to these religious leaders, John gives them the same message that he gave to the common man. You must repent, you must show the fruit if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think John has a good teaching point here. Because whether you're teaching someone a golf swing, whether you're teaching them how to change oil, whether you're teaching to read, to calculate two plus two is four, or to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they don't show it, they don't know it. And that's his point as he's getting their attention. Repentance is not a matter of words and rituals, but a real change of life. He says, don't presume upon Abraham. They're putting all their attention and their connection they boasted that they were the descendants of Abraham. In fact, there was one tradition that was held that Abraham was such a righteous man, had so obeyed the law of God that he even had accumulated merit left over that would fall upon the people. And so they were smug in their relationship with Abraham. And John gets out the knife and quickly fillets that argument and says salvation is not by heritage nor by family name. No one has an inherent privilege before God, but needs the mercy of God to come into his presence. And so he tells them, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
So John says, the true children of Abraham are those who obey God and those who walk in his way. And if God could raise up Adam from the dust of the earth, it is no problem for him to raise up the sons of Abraham from the stones that would have been plentiful all around the wilderness in which they were standing. And there's a play on words here in the original because the word for son and the word for stone are very similar. And perhaps he had the words of Isaiah in his mind because in Isaiah 51, they were told that the people of Israel were told that they were carved out, as it were, from the rock who was Abraham. And here John is telling these religious leaders, it's not enough to claim Abraham as your father. You too must repent and believe. You too must have your heart of stone taken out with a heart of flesh so that you will experience the living God. Later on, then in the Gospels and in imagery that is used in the prophets, we have that imagery of the stones, taking out the heart of stone to be given a heart of flesh. And Peter will say later on that the church is composed of those who are the living stones of the temple of God. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Rome, says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. And so those who believe in the promises of God through Christ are the true children of Abraham. And so there's a warning for us then. We too need our hearts of stone changed to hearts of flesh so that we might be the true children of Abraham. But it is not in separating ourselves from everything that we think is evil, like the Pharisees. That is not how we are saved. It is not in aligning ourselves with the politically powerful, like the Sadducees, that we are saved. Salvation is of the Lord. He doesn't care about human pedigree. He doesn't care about party membership. He doesn't care about any prestige or position that you have. He cares that you come to him on his terms, in faith and humility and repentance, because he is the king of a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom that has no parallel among anything here below. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of the Lord. And so what's our responsibility then as parents, as family members, as the church? Well, we do what we're supposed to do. We raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We teach them the word. There's intentional instruction that takes place. We have them memorize the Bible. We pray with them. We teach them that their hearts need to be changed and directed to the Lord. We get them involved in church, that Christ becomes the center of our family life. We live before them what we want them to become. And we pray like crazy that their hearts will be turned to Christ. But salvation is a divine work. And ultimately, we are so dependent upon God to do what only he can do. And so we pray that God will grant repentance even to our children, that they might believe and become the true children of Abraham as living stones and not the dead stones of culture or tradition or religion. Then John gives the test, the root and the fruit. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says the axe is already at the root of the tree. It's penetrated through the outer bark. It's at the very core. Perhaps with one more swing of the axe, the tree will come down. The time is urgent. The time is short. As Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is the executioner of righteousness. 
and his axe will strike every tree and judge its fruit. And so we see once again this idea that repentance will show itself in good fruit. We can't depend on our heritage or our name or our activities or our traditions because we don't even know our hearts. And so we have to give our hearts to the Lord and say, would you purify? Would you cleanse? The fact remains that the weeds of sin will always grow up among the wheat and they'll be separated out at the end. We'll see that later in the Gospel of Matthew and the separation, the parable of the wheat and the tares. But for now, we're told that the axe is laid at the root of all the trees. My friends, if that axe were to fell you as a tree right now, what kind of tree will you have proven to be? Our third point then is a mighty harvester. The mighty harvester. Now the test has been given. It applies to all the trees. The tree that bears fruit in keeping with repentance is the one that will be brought in into the harvest, but the one that is not will be burned up. And John... John has to learn some things about Jesus, and one of them is he has to learn about the timing of Jesus concerning sin and its judgment. John expects the final judgment to come right here. He's expecting Jesus to come and to bring the fire and to bring the judgment. And he's going to learn that though Jesus will judge sin, that he's doing it on his time scale for his glory. And so John confesses then that there is a greater baptizer, a greater baptizer. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, if John was able to survive in the wilderness, he must have been a rigorous man, rigorous in mind, rigorous in body. But here he says there's one more powerful than me. And Jesus is that more powerful one. And John will learn as he gets to know Jesus early on in Jesus' earthly ministry that he must increase and I must decrease. And that's true for each and every one of us. He says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Another gospel adds, I'm not worthy to even untie them. This was the lowest position in society, to untie someone's sandals and to carry them. Because the terrain was dusty and dirty and this would not have been a pleasant task. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy of the lowest of the low for Christ. He knows that he's going to be the coming redeemer and judge. Those that are eligible to enter the kingdom of heaven are those who recognize, first of all, they don't deserve to go. And they repent. And they're humble before a holy God and say, unless you have mercy upon me, I'm undone. And that's why we are called servants. Because we serve a great king and a living God. And it's all because of him. And I love what one commentator says. It puts us all in our place. He says, the church has many servants, but only one hero. We serve our one hero, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we will serve forever. And John recognizes him as a greater baptizer who is bringing a greater baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this coming of the Holy Spirit upon all the people of God was prophesied in many places in the Old Testament. Among others, Joel chapter 2, Ezekiel 36. That this is a sign then that the new covenant has come. And we're blessed today that at the moment that we believe the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And remains with us forever. And when he comes, he brings his purifying power so that the rot 
is starting to be rooted out from our hearts and our minds and our souls and our behavior. And that's what John is talking about here. The Holy Spirit who comes is that purifying fire in the life of those that God is saving. And it will always result in life change. John is warning the Sadducees and the Pharisees that those who want to live their own way will be okay. He say, no, you too must repent and turn away from your old way of living and show the fruit of your repentance to show that you're humble before the Lord because there is coming an eternal separation. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When the winnowing fork is in the hand, it's in the last stages of dividing the harvest. It's been brought in, and now the sifting has taken place. The wheat will be gathered, the weeds, the chaff will be burned. John's expecting that to happen right now, right at that point. And Jesus will get to, to that point. At the second coming, there will be the final winnowing winnowing of the, the wheat and the chaff. He is the judge from sin. But he's also the savior from sin. The gospel of Matthew started, he will save his people from their sins. Today, my friend, we live in the age of grace. And in that age of God's mercy between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, now we have the opportunity to repent and to believe so that we will survive the final judgment because we are secure in Christ. The imagery here is frightful. Imagine an unquenchable fire. We know what a terrible fire is. Many of us far closer than we ever hoped for. Imagine an unquenchable fire. The judgment of God against sin, against sinners who not only sinned against him in space and time, but because there's no sign they will repent in hell, will continue to blaspheme his name throughout all eternity. And be continually punished for their sins. The time now is to repent. The time now is to believe. Came across an author this week who said that there is a radical difference between natural regret and God given repentance. And he goes on and says the flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, be ashamed of itself. But this sort of disgust with past actions can be quickly shrugged off. And the individual can soon go back to his old wicked ways. None of the marks of true repentance are found in his behavior. And then what, what shocked me and caused me to just cry out to God for mercy for myself and for all who will hear my voice this morning. There are ten men in the Bible who clearly said, I have sinned. But only five clearly repented. As you hear the word of God. Recognize that Jesus is the great divider of men. And he will separate the saints that he is sanctifying from those who are impenitent, maybe depending upon the thin thread of human effort to save themselves. John begins his message by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I join him with today in saying, repent and turn to Christ while you still can before it's too late. Next week, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ himself undergoing this baptism of John, and we'll look at why, and we'll see that it is important that he do that 
to fulfill all righteousness, which means to continue to uphold all that he had to fulfill so that he could be our sin sacrifice. But in the meantime, as we contemplate our message for today, what are some truths that we can carry into the week? We are to be the voice of truth, pointing people to Jesus and not to ourselves. Oh, that all that we would do as we teach, as we preach, as we serve, as we love, as we pray, people's attention would be drawn to Christ. And we're not to live for just the fancy things of this world. John shows us that we should live for the true riches of Christ. It's not that we can't have nice things. It's we don't serve nice things. We enjoy nice things while we seek the true riches in Christ. It is not our heritage or human connection that saves us, but only the grace of God. And we need to remember that. And ultimately, we are a dependent people because true repentance is dependent upon the Lord. Therefore, cry out and turn away and repent and say, oh God, have mercy on me. And then, we have a great responsibility. As we've been reminded this week, we do not know when the toll of death will ring for us. And so with the time that we have, we need to be active in warning others about the final and real judgment to come. We have the message of life. Let's be life bringers as we go and encounter people and say, yes, there is sin, but oh, there is a great Savior. Won't you come and kneel with me at the cross? Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a word and an example, Father, that honestly shakes us to the core. And because it does, Father, we free our hearts now and open them and say, God, would you do the work that only you can do in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. Yes, Father, we want that purifying fire to continue, to burn away that which is unpleasing to you. We so desire to be lavish, uh, joy in the lavishness of your love and in your grace and in being free in Christ, free from sin, free from guilt, free from addiction. Father, would you work on our hearts this week, causing us to rejoice in a Savior who saves us so, and then give us someone with whom we can share that message this week. As we pray now, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor Greg, for bringing us the word. Must be nice to uh, teach out of the right text. If you could all stand with me as we sing our closing song. Uh, this is a song that uh, Brian chose, and I, I, it's one that I think you will enjoy, but it is new, um, or at least it has not been sung for a while. So uh, once you catch on, uh, please join us. thought of us before the world began to be. You know our names before we came to be. You saw the every day we'd fall away from you. Oh, desperately need to be redeemed. Lord Jesus, come lead us. We're desperate for your touch. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come 
that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh again. Come search our hearts and purify our lives. We need your perfect love. We need your discipline. We're lost unless you guide us in your life. Lord Jesus, come lead us. We're desperate for your touch. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice, that you would reign that you would reign in us. For your life to refine us, cry out. For your love to define us, cry out. For your mercy to keep us, blame us until you return. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire you come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice. That you would reign, that you would reign in us. That you would reign, that you would reign in us. It's a joy to see all of you here this morning as we've gathered around the throne of grace and around the, the table of the Lord and celebrating the great salvation we have in Christ. Just a reminder, next week at 11 a.m. we have our family meeting, congregational meeting, and there are a couple of matters that we will deal with there. One is um, approving a new uh, church constitution and bylaws. Copies are available if you would like to take one as you go out, and more copies can be made, made available in the church office during the week. And there will be a second administrative matter, and that is... Pete Sundahl, Pete, would you stick your hand up, is uh, on the ballot to be affirmed uh, to the ballot of the Orville, uh, the board of the Orville Christian School. And so that will be on the ballot that will be announced next week. Our Sunday school classes will begin at 11 a.m. prompt. Dr. Don is going to be meeting here in front of the sanctuary. Ken and Mark are going to be meeting over in the library, and I will be meeting in the music room. So grab a cup of coffee, a donut, have some good fellowship, and then we'll see you all at 11 a.m. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us go in peace and have a wonderful Lord's Day. Thank you.